This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good? Good. Okay, so we're learning today Lili Nishmas, uh, it's the Yorkset of Sarit Martin. Um, so we do to all the Shalom Bas Ephraim, Menachem Mendel, Vadina, she is you. Very, very special girl with an uh, organization in the five towns called uh, the main group, which gets together every day, right? Every single day. And they say Kahilim, and they have people giving shurim um, Roy Martin's house, and this was her daughter. And it happens to be today that it's her yard site. I have known her. So it's a supposed uh, to be able to give a shir this morning. We were actually thinking of not giving a shir on Sunday. In the last second, we decided that before everybody leaves, we should give a little few-minute synopsis of, of Shabbos. So I want to talk about something that nobody talks about, and that's the Shabbos. When it comes to lying in the night. <coughs> for some reason, that happens to be the B'nai Sussel talks a lot about it, but for some reason we have this uh, more than a minute that, that when you light the menorah, you're not supposed to use a match, but you're supposed to use a uh, You're supposed to use a shamus. And that the shamus is very, very important. And uh, you see in all our menorahs that it's above the rest. It's supposed to be, it's above or separated from the rest. But my so why is there so much attention given to the shamus? So, um, we know that, that you're not allowed to have any anah from any of the candles. So you can't light one candle from another candle. So we have this shamas that lights um, that lights all the other candles. But but what about using matches? So you use it on the fourth day, you use four matches. You light one, you light another, you light another, you light another. Why do you need a shamas? So it's put down that you're not allowed to have anah. So if you're going to walk into a dark room and you're not going to have a shamas, you're going to have just the four candles or one candle, whatever it is that night. So you're going to have a gnaw from that light. That's why. That's how you see what's going on in the room. So the shamus, because we have the shamus there, we say that the light that you're using is, is the light of the shamus. And it just happens to be very interesting. It's one of the proofs that I use when I talk to kids that are struggling with believing in Hashem, that we know that a ner is called a ner neshama. Neshama, whose soul is compared to a ner. Why specifically to a flame? So in this world of nature... Fire is the one thing that does not comply with the rules of nature um, in, in a few ways. Number one, so there's a thing called gravity, which pushes everything down. And if you light a candle, if you light a fire, it's always going up. If you turn the candle over, it's still always going up. It defies, fire defies gravity. So that's, that's number one. Number two, um, there's a, in physics, there's what's called a theory of displacement. What that means is that when you, let's say, have a cup, a bottle of water, and you want to take the bottle of water and pour it into another bottle, so you automatically, by putting water from this bottle to the other bottle, you're displacing water from this bottle. This bottle will become less. It's a, it's a law in physics. You have a pound of sand, and you take out half a pound, right? You give it, you put it in a different pail, so you displace. This, this only has half that. The only thing that does not fit into the, into the um, theory of displacement is fire. Fire, you can take one candle, one match, and you can light a hundred of them. And the fire still remains the same. So it defies that rule of physics. Um, there's no displacement. In fact, you can have a you can have a spark hit hit a leaf on the ground, and the whole forest, hundred thousand acres, burned. So the fire itself that comes from the original fire, not only there's no displacement, sometimes it's way bigger than the original fire. So that's why a neshama is called a ner, it's called ner neshama. The reason is because a soul, a person, 
has the koyach to help a thousand people without losing anything. And, you know, people, some people that, you know, like, you know, I don't have the time, I don't have that, I can't give up myself. Well, there's no such thing when it comes to the shama of giving up yourself. You can light up a thousand shamas, and you and a shama did not lose anything. So it, it works with the same idea of this power, that there's no displacement. And therefore, and in the shama we know also it's always the same way as fire, it's always reaching up, it's always reaching up. It's always trying to grow, it's always trying to get in. And that's why it says that the very famous story of the Russians used to put spies in shuls to see what the rabbi is saying, to see what's going on, because at that time the Russians would, would take a lot of Jewish kids into the army. So if a rabbi would get up and, you know, hide or make tricks or whatever, so these to There was a famous story where um, there was this rub and there was Avani Shmanestri, yeah, there was Avani Shmanestri, whatever it was, and um, there was this one guy that wasn't shuffled. But Avani, everybody shuffles. We, you see in show, we all shuffle. There was one guy that was standing with his hand behind his back, just praying like that. He right away spotted that this was a guy. And he right away, you know, made sure that he didn't say anything that he shouldn't have. And actually, that day, he was supposed to speak about the draft, and that everybody knew it. Guy, kids came in to hear from it. And all of a sudden, he was saying that the Russian army is important, and, and nobody understood why. And afterwards, he said there was a guy, there was a spy. He said, how can you know it was a spy? He said, because he wasn't shaking. So why did the Jew shake? Why do we shake when we dive in? And if you ever, you should never go to a church or ever, but the priests, they stand very still, very still with their hands in front of them. Why? Because the neshama is always moving. It's always growing, growing, going up like a flame. And I once went to someone at the show, it was very, very weird. Um, he was supposed to be very big with Google, and his koyach was watching the, the flame. He was able to read the flame, and he told me, uh, it was just an interesting, in those days I was collecting information, so it was very interesting. He told me, and don't try this at home because we don't know how to read it, but he said that Matzi uh, Shabbos, so by Chassidim, by many people, they like um, Shalom Bayis, two left, which is Shalom Bayis. He said if you watch two flames, if they go towards each other, then the Shalom Bayis that week is going to be very good. They're talking to each other. And if they go away from each other, so I don't tell my wife this, but every once in a while I watch it. If it doesn't work, I just bend the candles towards each other. But but we're very much compared. We're very much our souls are very much compared. We're very much compared. To and I, and I think that you know it's interesting. A boy came over to me this morning, and he said to me um, that he was sitting with his wife, and she was listening to my speeches and to Charlie's speeches and whatever it is. And she said that you know you have the koyach, you have the same koyach as, as Rabbi Wallstein and, and Charlie. You. You're good with guys and everything. I think you should, you know, I think you should uh, go into this. You're like 26 years old or whatever. So, so I said, if if that's the reason you're going into it, because you want to be a speaker, you know, in the, and everybody comes to your speeches, it'll never happen. Because I, I have to tell you that, I mean, he didn't want to talk about himself, but Charlie Harari um, was a lawyer in, in one of the biggest law firms. He, he's a Harvard graduate. And, and he was one of the biggest law firms in America, where after, I think, eight or ten years, you become a junior partner, then you become a senior partner. You get two million, you get at least $2 million a year without even blinking. You're, you're, you're in, and it's one of these things that you grow and you grow and you grow. And, and he just stepped out of it. He was schmuck. You'll never meet someone more than schmuck. I can't talk in front of him. You'll never meet someone more than schmuck than him. Imamish is a schmuck to, to, to bring the beauty of 
being a Jew to the world, not only to Klyestro, but to the world. And he gave this up. And it's not because he wanted to be a speaker. It didn't come from there at all. I can tell you that the last thing I ever wanted to become was a speaker. Because Russell was the world. But you have to, it has to be Lashma. It has to be to help Hashem's children. If you want to help his children, he will give you either the financial means or the spiritual means to help his children. So, very much the, the, the Shamas, right, has a very interesting double action. One, the Shamas lights the Heliger candles that you're not allowed to have another from. But two, he's there for the Chol. He's there if you need to read in the room, right? You wouldn't be able to read by Hanukkah in there. In the olden days, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have lights, right? So, so he's there for both. He's there for the Kaddish Dicky candles, but he's also there for the Chol. The person wants to read, and he can't have enough from the Kaddish Dicky candles. So, I want to tell you, probably the greatest story I've ever heard in my life when it comes to um, when it comes to Chesed. Now, this is a true story, and after I finish, I will tell you where it's written. But it's definitely 100% true because it was very much checked out. The, the place that it's written doesn't write stories unless they're 100% checked out. So this is a true story. So there was this nursing home, and there was this guy in the nursing home, his name was Lefkowitz. He was a very wealthy man, and every room in the nursing home had two people in it. His room, because he was so wealthy, he was paying for both. But he, alone, he was alone in the room. This is what he wanted. He was alone in the room. He was very artistic. He never had lost his two legs to diabetes. Um, very, very nice, very special man. Okay, one day, the owner of the nursing home comes to him. And he says, listen, I need a favor from you. There's, there's a Jewish man who wants to get into this nursing home. And we don't have any room. We have no beds. Well, we could put a bed in your room. We know that someone is moving to Florida. We're going to move him out in 30 days. Would, would you let, otherwise we're going to lose this guy. So would you let him stay in your room? We know you're paying for two. We'll, we'll let him pay for the other one, but we just need a bed. We need the space. Would you let us put it in? He said, Leftwood is a good guy. He said, no problem, but one month. That's it. Don't, I don't want to get stuck here. You know, I want to be alone in my room. They said, fine, no problem. Okay. So a few hours later, they bring a bed in. A few hours later, they wheel this guy in. Miserable old man. Miserable. Right? They put him in his bed, and this Leftowitz guy, you know, gets into his wheelchair, and he wheels over. This guy's name is Friedman. He wheels over, he says, Mr. Friedman, welcome to my palace. And Friedman sort of just mumbles under his breath, like, get out of here, leave me alone. This is not what I'm here for. He says, no, no, no. Friedman, you don't understand. This is my room. And I'm letting you stay in my room. Don't give me this attitude. Listen, I don't want to be here. My kids put me here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in your room. I don't care about your room. Start screaming at him. He's like, no way. This guy is not staying in my room for 30 days. Fine, picks up the phone, calls the owner of the nursing home. He says, uh-uh. This is not, this guy's not staying in my room for 30 days. What's going on? He says, he's shrying at me, he's screaming at me, he doesn't want to be here with his kids. He says, I don't need this. I don't, I, I don't need this. Okay, listen, we can't move him now. Let him stay overnight. Tomorrow we'll come, we'll see, we'll see what we can do. Fine. So, that night, Leftowitz goes to his bed, goes to bed. 
and he hears Friedman's crying. Crying. The guy was yelling at him. Gets back into his into his wheelchair, wheels over to Friedman. He says, Mr. Friedman, why are you crying? Get away from me. He starts screaming at him, get away from me. He says, no, but you're crying. Why are you crying? So finally, Friedman loses patience with this nice guy. He says, you want to know why I'm crying? Look at my face. He looks at his face. He goes, I don't see his face. I mean, you're not exactly handsome, but it's not a reason for you to be crying. He says, no, look closer. Look at my eyes. He looks at his eyes. He says, you have very nice green eyes. What's your problem? You fool, can't you see I'm blind? I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't know. Now all of a sudden he feels really bad that he's so happy. And he says, you didn't know? You didn't know? You know when the last time I saw my children? You know when the last time I saw a color? I live in darkness, Mr. Leftwood. Well, you're happy-go-lucky. Okay, now just leave me alone in my own darkness. He's like, oh, my, what, am I, what am I doing with this guy? Now I'm going to throw him out. He feels bad, a blind man. Next to me, he says, okay, here's the deal, Friedman. It's a true story. Here's the deal. I'm an artist. You're blind? I'm going to give you another pair of eyes. I'm going to be your eyes. I'm going to sit by the window every single day at sunrise, and I'm going to describe to you sunrise. I'm going to describe, because I have nothing to do. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm going to describe the beauty of the world the park, sunset. Says, I'm going to be your eyes. Michigan, get away from my bed. He says, listen, tomorrow morning, let me do sunrise. Give me one hour. I promise you, if you don't like it, I will never come to this side of the room again. I will leave you alone for the next 30 days. I will not bother you. You promise? I promise. Okay, Michigan, you can wake me up at sunrise. Fine. Sunrise. He starts to describe, it's dark, and now there's a little bit, a little pink, and a little this, and all that. He's admonished, he is so descriptive of the clouds, and it's cumulus, and a little cirrus, and I'm showing off what I know. And, 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 and he's like, and, and this guy's sitting there, and he's going through the whole thing. And then there's this hour, we're at the park, and there's this lady with a yellow jacket, she's getting on the B12, and he, he's admonished for this hour, and he's like, and this guy's sitting, he's like, never had such a machine gun. Sitting there for every second describing it. Fine. Anyway, he says, hours up. Freeman says, okay, I get out of my life. He says, okay. We made a deal, we made a deal. A few hours later, Freeman says, you know, Leftwoods, you're very Michigan. He says, but I'm just wondering, like, what's going on outside right now? Make a long story short, I used to be here all morning. We start to become very good friends. And Leftwoods is doing this every single day. Morning. Night, Big Dipper, Little Dipper, the moon, the this, the that, and they become a chevra, the whole nursing home knows, leftwards and Friedman are inseparable. A year later, he's still in the room, a year later, one morning, Friedman calls Lefkowitz over to his bed. He says, Lefkowitz, he actually, in the book, he called him Lefko. He says, Lefko, I gotta tell you something. Before I went blind, I never saw sunrise. There was a sunset. I never looked at the kids in the park. I see more now blind with you than I saw when I could see. I just want to tell you that I love you and I want to thank you and give a big hug. At that part of the book, I read the book, I'm like crying already, right? Okay. A few days later, 
Friedman wakes up. He's wondering, he feels, he's one, but he feels much later than usual. It's definitely bad sunrise. And he starts screaming, Lefkowitz, Lefkowitz, where are you? Lefkowitz, where are you? He's screaming. There's no answer. He starts pulling the string, you know, for the nurse to come. The nurse comes running in. He says, where's my friend? What time is it? She goes, 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock? Sunrise was at 6.20. 8 o'clock? Where's Lefkowitz? Friedman, I'm really sorry. But while he was sleeping last night, he had chest pains. And they rushed him to the hospital. So Lefkowitz passed, passed on. Friedman starts screaming. What? The second time God took away my eyes. He starts screaming. Now I'm in the dark again. It can't be. Why are you telling me? Why are you telling me that? Maybe he went to the hospital, but he's going to be okay. Tell me he's going to be okay. He starts screaming. She's like, I'm really sorry. The funeral is today at 2 o'clock. Get me dressed. I want to be at that funeral. I want to tell his children and grandchildren what kind of grandfather and what kind of father they had. Every single day what he did for me. Get me dressed. By the way, he says, 8 o'clock? Okay, at 8.10, I want you to go to the window. Did you know that at 8.10, every single morning, there's this crazy lady. She wears this red, red jacket. She wears it in the summer, in the fall, in the winter. She's totally Meshiga, and she has this little black poodle, and she carries him on the bus. Just tell me, right? In, in the memory of my best friend, just tell me she did this morning. So, she says to him, at 8.10, you want me to do this? How am I going to do this? He says, go to the window. She says, what are you talking about? Says, go to the window. She says, there's no window in this room. She says, are you crazy? You're playing with a blind man? You think you're going you, you to make a joke out of me? What do you mean there's no window? Go to Lefkowitz's window! What are you talking about? She says, Mr. Friedman, there's no window in this room. He gets up. He's blind. He gets up. He goes, he feels Lefkowitz's bed. He starts feeling the wall. He says, it's impossible. You made this up. He starts screaming, liars! And he's feeling his whole wall. He goes through the whole wall. There's no window. He says, there's no window. Lefkowitz sat at a wall and made this up every single day for me. He goes to the funeral and he gets up and he says something unbelievable. He said, I thought your grandfather was an angel. I thought he was the most special man in the world. He says, for even someone to look at through a window and describe everything they see for a blind man is an unbelievable charitable chesed. He said, but he had the same wall I did. He didn't see a park or a bus or a sunrise. He sat on a wall just like me. And he turned it into a window? He said, that's godly. That's not an angel. That's godly. I read this story in Chicken Soup for the Soul. Now, the book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, and every single story that's in there, is not just a story, it's checked out and checked out. Because I was like, come on, this is a crazy story. But Kachleya, they write how they checked it. It was, a, it was a nursing home in Alabama, and one of them happened to have been a Jew. I changed the name to, to Lefkowitz and Friedman. The names have been changed. But this was the story. And he got up at the funeral and said, that's not an angel, that's godly. So what I get from the story? that 
we have a koyach for sure when life is good and when, when Hashem, our families, everything is good and we're looking out a window. So many of us have the strength to help other people. That's an angel. Godly is when you're not doing so well. Godly is when a girl is a little older and she doesn't have a shidduch and all she's busy is trying to find shidduchim for others. Godly is when someone doesn't have so much money but whatever he has, he tries to help the poor. Godly is when you take a wall that's in front of you and you turn it into a window for somebody else. And I was thinking to myself that in Shirashirim, Shlomo Melech says that God looks at us through a through a window and through the cracks of a wall. And they ask, does, what does he mean? Does God look at, look at us through a window or does he look at us through a crack of a wall? Either or. So the Mepharshim Chazal says that in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, Hashem looked at us through a window. And now, in this Gullus that we're in, he looks at us through a crack in the wall. Manashtano, what's the difference? The difference is that when mommy looks at you, when you go to the bus through the window, you can turn back and wave at mommy and see her in the window. But when mommy's looking through a crack in the wall, she sees you. But when you turn around, all you see is a wall. In the times of the base of English, God would saw us, but we saw him. Today, you go to Ed's Israel, there's a Kaisa Maravi without any windows in it. And it just has cracks and some papers and some plants. But there's no window in that wall. And I feel very much that this is the ikhfah the Mashiach. This is the heel. The heel of Mashiach. The last part of your body. The edge of your body. If you take it from the top of your head, the last part of your body is your heel. And that's when the Mashiach is coming. And the last part of the ikhfah the Mashiach that we're in right now we need to put a window on that wall, everybody. We need to put a window on that coastal. The only way God's going to put a window on that coastal is if we take other people's walls and turn them into windows. And that's what I'm trying to do, and a lot of good Jews are trying to do, because there are a lot of kids out there that are blind, and they don't see the beauty of God, and they don't see what the importance of the sunrise, and they don't see the beauty of life, they don't see the beauty of family, so this boy asked me this morning, and I wanted to tell him that not everything has to be perfect in your life to take a wall and make it into a window for somebody else. You just got to do what you can. You got to be like this person. You got to describe the beauty of Yiddishkeit to the person who's sitting in their bed until four o'clock in the afternoon because they were up all night, or even people who look like everything is okay, but inside. Your mom is blind or your mom is looking at a wall. There's every Jew, just by saying good morning, just by saying how are you, just by putting an arm around and saying, you know, I'm with you and I'll help you. Every Jew has the power that left words have. All of us have that craft. And we just have to go inside ourselves, even if sometimes we're at a wall and we have to find that cause. And that's what I spoke about Yosef Atzali. I'll end today with Joseph Vatali. I just want to tell you one more story. We'll end with this. A brilliant, brilliant story. With Charlie was here because it's a lawyer's story. <coughs> so so you heard a lot of good speeches and I give a lot of speeches, but I'm not an entertainer. I'm not interested. I think very carefully before I speak. But if nobody's gonna walk out of my speech and change their life, 
a waste of my time. I'd rather go sit and learn or play ball. Uh, I'm not interested in an entertainer. Being in Hollywood, make a lot of money. I'm not an entertainer. So I'm very, when I, when I speak, I'm, I'm looking for people to change. Otherwise, what do you need me for? So the famous story, and I end my Shabbat talk with this story, always. And it's a fascinating story. It's taught in law school under the subject, coach your client. One of my Talmudim is a lawyer, actually half a day lawyer, half a day rabbi. And he told me this story that he was taught in law school. So there was this very famous politician, very wealthy man, who was accused of murdering a 17-year-old girl. And he went ahead and he hired a lawyer in America who's called the $5 million lawyer. This guy, like O.J. Simpson, this guy never lost a case. Never. His retainer was $5 million. He did not lose the case. He was brilliant. So this politician, rich guy, said, listen, I'm not going down. I'm not going to jail. I'm going to hire a man who never lost. So he hired him. Now, the way it works in the DA, right, is it's a guy role. They don't, the guy who goes up in every case is the next assistant DA. So never this poor guy who just came out of law school. He, his case was going up against a $5 million lawyer. I mean, he had no chance. He had no nothing. Anyway, so the press was like, this is a slam dunk. There's no way this, the DA is going to win this case. Okay. So he walks in with his client. He's got the bow tie. He's got the whole look. He's, he's the man, $5 million retainer. And then the other guy walked in. He's like, okay, I'm going to do my best, whatever. Anyway, so the case goes to trial. And um, the first, so all the press is like, this is like a no-brainer. Who's going to win this? Slammed up. They go to trial, and the DA gets up, and he starts prosecuting, and he has this lady that's sitting there, and he says, did you hear, did you hear any screams coming out of the room? Yes, I heard blood-curling screams, and, 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 and there were noises, and all of a sudden it got silent. And so the lawyer says, what time of day was this? And she goes, 3 o'clock. So how do you know? She said, I happened to have looked at my watch, and it was exactly 3 o'clock. Okay. I rest my case. He sits down. Now the big shot gets up. He looks at this lady, and he says, Lady, you say it was 3 o'clock? Yes. Could it have been 3.01? She goes, yeah, it was 3 o'clock. Could it have been 2.59? She goes, sir, it was 3 o'clock. He goes, what kind of watch are you wearing? She says, a Timex. Timex is a pretty cheap watch, would you say? She goes, yes. Did you get it checked? Was it in by a jeweler, a, a watchmaker? No. So you would agree that it could be a minute off. She goes, yeah. Can I rest my case? Everybody's sitting there like, what? Five million dollars? Cross-examine a watch? Right? What's going on here? The guy who was being charged with the crime, he's sitting there like, that's what I spent five million dollars on? Okay. This goes on a whole week. A whole week. This guy's prosecuting like crazy, and the five million dollar lawyer is making a chayzik. He's doing nothing. Never the accused he's schwitzing. The press is starting to write, they think that the five million dollar lawyer had a nervous breakdown because he's lavish, totally not doing anything. And everyone's like, this guy's becoming a big shot. He's like, he's killing him. He's killing him. Okay, the case is over. Summation. So the judge turns to the prosecuting DA. He says, "Summation, please summarize the case." He gets up. Now he's full of himself because he 
seems like he beat this guy. And he says to the jury, Man and ladies of the jury, this, the accused, murdered a 17-year-old girl. She'll never have children. She'll never go to a prom. She'll never this. She'll never go to, to, to college. She'll never get a degree. He's guilty of murder. We must execute him. And he's like, yeah. And everybody's like, whoa. Right? And the jury's sitting there like, oh, man, he really killed this girl. There's like no question. We are going to put him away. Okay. He sits down. The judge turns to the $5 million lawyer. Summation. He gets up. He says, so I hear the press wrote. I had a nervous breakdown. I heard a lot of things were written about me. He says, no, I didn't have a nervous breakdown. So you're wondering why I didn't take this case seriously. He says, I'll tell you the truth. Before the case started, I got a phone call from the girl, from the victim. And she told me, nobody killed me. I'm in Mexico. I had a fight with my parents. I ran away. I don't know what they're making. I, I read this case that's coming up. And I told her, listen, girl, you're in Mexico. There's, there's a guy that's innocent that's about, that may go down and, and, and may be executed. You need to get back here fast. And she told me that she would be back here today. And right now, it's 1 o'clock. She caught a flight. And she will be back here at 3 o'clock. So I felt, what am I going to sit here a whole week and banter about all this? There is no victim. You see there's no body. So therefore, I figured, I'm going to have some fun. So, my summation to the jury is, 3 o'clock, we're going to find out that this was a circus. So, judge, could you please have a recess till 3 o'clock? No problem. Never to support DA. He's like, oh, did I make a fool of myself here with all my stuff? Now the girl, the girl that's the victim is going to walk in. He's thinking career's over. The whole DA's office is going to be making fun of him for the rest of their lives. He got up and prosecuted a case. But the girl went to Mexico. The place is fine. The newspapers are right. I'm going crazy. Unbelievable. The jury's sitting there saying, oh, my gosh, look how we could have been fooled. We were ready, we were ready to kill this guy. Okay. Three o'clock, everybody comes in. Everybody sits down. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And at 3.15. And at 3.30. And all of a sudden, the door opens. In walks this girl. Everybody jumps. Oh, it's the, it's the court reporter. Right? Everyone's like, whoa. Court reporter sits down. They change places. The other one goes out. Quarter to four. Four o'clock. Nothing. Finally, the judge turns around to the lawyer. He says, listen, I don't know what kind of games you're playing over here. But I'm telling you right now, summation or contempt of court. He said, no problem. Summation. God wants to listen to this. He gets up and he says, the said, jury, is it true or not true in America to find someone guilty, it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes, we were instructed. He says, is it true or not true that from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, you were all watching the door? And had it been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, why were you staring at that door for an hour? It means that you believe that it was possible for her to walk in. And guess what? I didn't even expect this. But at 3.30 when that girl walked in, you all jumped. You thought it was her. It was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. You would have known it wasn't her. Therefore, you must find my client 
innocent. The judge is sitting there, and he's like, brilliant! He fooled everybody, but he's brilliant! What a brilliant move! He says to the jury, you got to go into the jury room. You were all staring, you all jumped. Had you known that she was dead, had you really believed that, you wouldn't have even looked at that door. You know what you have to do. They come out 20 minutes later, you sit down, this guy's sitting there, the lawyer, the five million dollar lawyer, and the other guy's slapping him on the back. He's like, wow! And the jury person gets up. We find the accused guilty. Manslaughter, first degree. Now the place goes crazy. Everyone's screaming and yelling. The judge is like, you can't say that! The jury person says, let me explain. Everybody sits down. She said, really? It wasn't my decision. This young girl that's on the jury... She's the one that explained to us why he's guilty. So we're going to let her say. She gets up. She says, I was not watching the door. I was watching the accused. From three to four, including when that girl walked in, he never turned around to look at that door. Which means he knew she wasn't walking through. And the only way that he could know that because he killed her. The judge goes, guilty as charged. And the lawyer runs over to his client, finally Bowser, and he picks him up. You idiot! If you would have turned and looked at the door for one second, you're a free man. So the professor tells all these lawyers that are Guys that are becoming lawyers, he's like, no matter what you come up with, coach the clients. Tell him what you're going to do. That was the class. Coach the client. So what I say, and it's not to you, it's to, it's to everybody, including myself. It's very nice to have a good lawyer, to have a good speaker. Have someone get up there and give a great speech, and another great speech. But if you walk away from this Shabbos, after talking about Chinuch, the way that we spoke, and you don't turn around and look at that door, you just sit in your seat, the same way you came here, you leave here, you're guilty. You're guilty. Because the greatest story in the world, if the client doesn't react, then Hashem sees, yeah, they came, they heard, they did... Well, the mice, they went home and nothing changed. So we're guilty. We don't do anything, we're guilty. One second, turn around. One second, if you turn around, you leave here, and you do one little change in your life. That means that you believe the story. That means you believe what you heard. But if you sit there, and you don't change anything, that means that it was just a good story. And then I Shabbos, but nothing happened. And that's not why I came here. I came here to, that all of us, including myself, should go home and maybe give more time to our wives, maybe to our children, to our grandchildren. Maybe when we see a cup, like I said the, the, when I spoke, when we see a cup, we can sit up in the cup to see that the cup is connected to a hand, and that hand is connected to a human, and maybe to offer them something more than just putting money in their cup. And when we see a girl in a short skirt, or a boy smoking on Shabbos, or a kid in the street, to understand that that cigarette 
that it's smoking, it's connected to a hand, it's connected to a body, it has a beautiful neshama in it. You can see way past the cigarette and the short skirt. And to understand that it's a chef child and cures and he loves that child very much. And he doesn't ever give up on any neshama. As I said, the way he created the world, light dispels darkness. There's no such thing as any type of darkness that can put out light. As dark as it gets, if there's a light, darkness is dispelled. And that's why our neshamas are called Aner neshama. No matter how much darkness, no matter what is happening, that darkness really does not have the craft to put out the light. It's a dimion that the Satan tells us it's called depression. Depression is a darkness that puts out the light, but it's just a dimion because there really is no such thing. Nothing can put out the light of the neshama. I can tell you from my experience, no matter how far they fall, as I said yesterday about Abby, no matter how far they fall, no matter where they end up, that neshama, that light, so we need to have that second look. We need to be able to see the person inside. And I spoke a lot about Yosef. And the last Pusik, the Pashas Voracious, is a very hard to understand Pusik. It says, Yosef Yosef died at 110 years old, but Yechantu also, they mummified him, and they put him in a coffin in Mitzrayim. That's how you end the whole book of Horatius. Horatius is a great book. Creation, Aram Yaakov, Shvatim. It's a great book. Right? A lot of things happen in Horatius. So the synopsis of Horatius is, Yosef died, they mummified him, stuck him in a coffin, and buried him in Mitzrayim, and if you come to Shul, Mitzrayim, Vashvayichi, Everybody screams, Chazak, Chazak, and this Chazak, yay! They mummified and put him in a coffin and buried him in Mitzrayim. Be strong, everybody! That's how you end the whole gracious? And the answer is yes. And I'll tell you why. Because Yeshua Tzadik suffered very, very, very much. But in the darkest, darkest hour of his life, when he was fighting with the wife of Potiphar, by Yemoy and Yosef, he stepped away. And when Klai Yisrael left Mitzrayim and came to the Yamsuf, he was stuck. Yamsuf in front of them, the three of behind them, they had nowhere to go. Moshe Rabbeinu said to the Yam, split. The Yam said, no. I will not split. I don't have to split. I'm not splitting. The Yamsuf saw something and it split. What did it see that it split? What's the last word? Saw the coffin of Yosef. And it split. Why? Because the Yamsuf said, There's one Jew amongst all of you that broke nature. Nature, such a beautiful woman, and him alone. With all the excuses, forget about my ready hit me or my mother didn't give me attention or my father didn't give me attention. My brother sold me. It's <laughs> a lot more than my father didn't give me attention. First they tried to kill me, threw me into a pit, right? That didn't work, so they sold me. Right? Pretty bad. And he said to them, don't worry about it. So the Yam saw that there was a human being that broke nature. And the Yam said, Mida Kinega Mida. If he could break nature, then I have to break nature. 
So the greatest pasuk, and this is such a lesson for all of us, when things go wrong and we get very upset, how could Hashem do this? Right? Especially here we have a yard site. A young, young girl, how can Hashem do this? It doesn't make any sense. And the answer is, the worst pasuk in the whole book of Horatius is the last pasuk, because had they taken him like Yaakov when he died and buried him in Israel, when they would have gotten to the Yamsuf, the window split. The only reason it split was because they were carrying the Oren of Yosef, and the Oren of Yosef broke, he broke nature, so that was the only reason it split. Had he not been buried in Mitzrayim, had he been buried in Israel, they would have been stuck. They wouldn't have been carrying anyone that broke Teva. So the greatest passing is by Yisem, but Oren in Mitzrayim, had they not put him a coffin in Mitzrayim, the Yom would have split, they would have died, and the whole Horatius is unimportant, because the reason Hashem created the world you don't get past Priya Sathra Tara Sinai, this whole book is Book of Horatius, no need. So the last Pusset, which looks like the worst Pusset, he died, they mummified him, they put him in a coffin, and the last word before we say Chazak, Chazak, Mishchazay, is Bin Mitzrayim. In Mitzrayim, Yaakov didn't get buried in Mitzrayim, he's going to be there in the Nile, when there's Kina, when there's Tzvadeya, when there's Dam, he's going to go through all of that, Looks like the worst word, and then we shrink chazak, chazak, mishchazek. Yes, chazak, chazak, mishchazek, because the worst word was the word that saved us. And sometimes in life, we go through the hardest times. It's really the greatest thing that ever happened to us. But it's very hard to see. So we all scream. We put him in the tribe. It looks really bad. Chazak, chazak, mishchazek. Be strong. That wall can turn into a window. Because what looks like the worst thing ended up saving Christ. This holy neshama that I'm learning... It's Chosov. Because of her, millions of kapitlach of Tehillim were said. Hundreds of thousands of hours, this a main group. Hundreds of thousands of Torah was learned because of her. Who in a life of a hundred years can learn that kind of that amount of Torah or said that amount of Tehillim? But if she caused it, then it's hers. So chazak chazak v'nis chazek. Sometimes you look at a wall, but really it's a window. And always turn around and look at the door. Because Mitz Hashem, very, very soon, if Klai Yisrael would just look at that door, Mitz Hashem Mashiach will walk through. Thank you very much. And have a lift to the Hanukkah. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.